So in the, uh, in the early days of Apple Maps, which wasn't that long ago, but in the early days of Apple Maps, uh, my wife and I, Danielle, we were invited to help a friend with his proposal. Now, he was proposing to a childhood friend of ours, and they live a few hours away, and they were kind of going to a more rural area, and so we didn't really know where we were going. So we punched it into Apple Maps, and we were on our way, and we're getting there, and we're getting closer and closer, and we're thinking, huh, this will be interesting how this works out, because it's not looking the way that we thought it was going to look like. And as the GPS continues on, and we get closer and closer, and then it gets, says, hey, you'll be there in a quarter mile, you'll be there in a tenth of a mile, you'll be there in 500 feet, 200 feet, 100 feet, you've arrived. Except we hadn't. We looked around, and there was tons of fields on the right, tons of fields on the left, and there was no entrance to anything even remotely close to where we were. We trusted Apple and it let us down. Now, hopefully it's gotten a little bit better since then, but we now are a family that typically does not use Apple Maps. However, we eventually made it, everything turned out fine. Um, we were able to help, we were a little bit late. But can you think of something that you've trusted that ultimately lets you down? Maybe it's technology, the way that it was with us. Maybe it's an organization. Maybe it's politics, a particular party, or an issue, or policy, or candidate. Maybe it's a person, a boss, who promised you a promotion, but has yet to come through on that. A friend who betrayed you. A spouse, perhaps, who promised, till death do us part, but in time proved that he or she didn't mean it. And look, friends, it's not, it's not wrong to trust technology. It's not wrong to trust organizations or people. Don't hear me say that. That's not what I'm saying. But it is wrong to place our ultimate trust in those things. And here's the thing. We're always tempted to elevate our trust to ultimate trust. And so wherever we place our ultimate trust, that, friends, is what we end up worshiping. Whether we realize it or not, wherever we place our ultimate trust, wherever we look to in, in our most difficult times, wherever we look to, to to get us to that next thing, that is the thing that we end up worshiping. And as we go through the text today, I think what we're going to see is that the Lord, Yahweh, so whenever you look in your Bible and see all caps, Lord, L-O-R-D, that's just saying Yahweh, it's his personal name, the Lord is the one true God. Therefore, our ultimate trust and worship belongs to him. That's the thrust of today's passage. The Lord is the one true God. Therefore, our ultimate trust and worship belong to him. And so as we've been going through the book of Exodus, we've just continuously seen time and again that God, this is a book that is all about God making himself known. He made himself known to Moses through a burning bush. He makes himself known to Israel through Moses. He makes himself known to Pharaoh through Moses and Aaron. He makes himself known to Egypt through signs and wonders, which is where we're starting to unpack that in this part of the, the book. And then he'll make himself known to other nations through Israel as we continue to go through this book. And last week, we saw that Moses and Aaron brought the first sign. So God gives these signs to confirm the message. He, he, Moses and Aaron brought this first sign to Pharaoh, a staff that turned into a snake. 
And then Pharaoh's magicians, they try to produce the same sign, and they do. However, Moses and Aaron's snake swallows up the other two snakes, which is just a foreshadow of what is going to take place as we unpack this book. Now, this week, as we look at this text, Exodus 7, 14 through 8, 19, the Lord is beginning to reveal his first set of signs and wonders, oftentimes called the plagues. His first set of those, he's revealing not just to Pharaoh, but to all of Egypt. So when Moses and Aaron came into Pharaoh's presence and they laid the staff down, that was just to Pharaoh and the people that were with him. But now God is making himself known to all of Egypt with this first set of plagues. And now look, each, each of these signs, each of these plagues, they reveal something that the Egyptians had placed their trust in. They had trusted it, and as we'll see, they began to worship it. And so God is exposing each of those things to be unworthy of their ultimate trust and worship. One pastor is collecting uh, resources and uh, helpful information about this sermon series. One pastor friend uh, sent me some of uh, his outline and how he kind of worked through these texts. And he titled uh, the, the portion of all these signs, all these plagues, these 10 plagues that we're going to go through. He titled it, The God's Lowercase G, The God's Beatdown. Because what God, what the Lord is doing is he's beating down all of these false gods that Egypt had begun to place their worship in, place their trust in. And so God begins his beatdown of those false gods. And so as I said, we are looking at Exodus chapter 7. We're going to go through verse 14 all the way through chapter, or verse 19 of chapter 8. And the outline, as you'll see in your bulletin, is threefold. It's pretty simple. We're just going to look at each of the signs. So the first one, we're going to look at the Nile. The second is going to be the frogs, and the third is going to be the gnats. So the Nile, the frogs, and the gnats. And so we're going to read Exodus chapter 7, and we'll just read the remainder of chapter 7, and then we'll get into chapter 8 as we go along. But if you're looking for that with one of the blue provided Bibles, that's going to be on page 49. If you don't own a Bible, consider that blue one that's right there for you. Consider that yours. It's our gift to you. So beginning in Exodus chapter 7, starting in verse 14. This is God's word. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning as he is going out to the water. Stand on the bank of the Nile to meet him and take in your hand the staff that turned into a serpent. And you shall say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, sent me to you, saying, Let my people go, that they may serve me in the wilderness. But so far you have not obeyed. Thus says the Lord, By this you shall know that I am the Lord. Behold, with the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water that is in the Nile, and it shall turn into blood. The fish in the Nile shall die, and the Nile will stink and the Egyptians will grow weary of drinking water from the Nile. And the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, Take your staff and stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, over their rivers, their canals, and their ponds, and all their pools of water, so that they may become blood, and there shall be blood throughout all the land of Egypt. 
even in vessels of wood and in vessels of stone. Moses and Aaron did as the Lord commanded. In the sight of Pharaoh and in the sight of his servants, he lifted up the staff and struck the water in the Nile, and all the water in the Nile turned into blood. And the fish in the Nile died, and the Nile stank, so the Egyptians could not drink water from the Nile. There was blood throughout all the land of Egypt, but the magicians of Egypt did the same by their secret arts. So Pharaoh's heart remained hardened, and he would not listen to them, as the Lord had said. Pharaoh turned and went into his house, and he did not take even this to heart. And all the Egyptians dug along the Nile for water to drink, for they could not drink the water of the Nile. Seven full days passed after the Lord had struck the Nile. Father, as we look at this text, and the remaining text that we have set before us today, we pray that you would help us to see you clearly. We pray that you would help me communicate clearly. And God, help us to place our trust and our ultimate worship in you and you alone. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. So as we look at this first section here, something to recognize is that Moses goes to Pharaoh with a warning. God graciously extends a warning to Pharaoh. He tells Moses to go to him in the morning and tell him what's going to happen if Pharaoh doesn't change his mind, if nothing changes on Pharaoh's end. And he says, the Nile will turn into blood, fish will die, Nile will stink, the Egyptians will stop drinking water from the Nile. Now, here's something for us to recognize, is that the Nile River was the backbone of Egypt's way of life. Not just their economy, but their, their daily life. And now, what's getting ready to happen, as we just read, is that the Nile is going to be incapable of supporting any life. Not just the nation of Egypt, but even the fish die. Which is ironic, because if we were to go all the way back to Exodus 1, you don't have to go there, but if you were to look back at Exodus 1, verse 22, we would see that Pharaoh commanded that the Hebrew sons be thrown into the Nile. And so this Nile, which is the backbone to the Egyptians' way of life, is going to be incapable of supporting any life, which is ironic because earlier they used the Nile to take life. You following with that? And so now, God shows them that they've placed their trust in the wrong place. He shows them that he hasn't forgotten what they previously used the Nile for. And so he turns it into blood. Now, the question is, is why blood? Like, why couldn't he have just dried up the Nile? Why did he go out of his way to turn it into blood? Well, I think there's a couple reasons. So first, the Egyptians worshipped several false gods that were associated with the Nile River. So there's at least four of them. There's probably more. Depending on who you look at, some say that the Egyptians worshipped a couple hundred gods, some say a couple thousand. So depending on what time and depending on where you get your resources, you can probably find more, but there's at least four gods that were associated with the Nile River. The first one is called Hapi, H-A-P-I. And this was just known as the god of the Nile flood. So each year the, the waters would flood and to, they would worship Hapi as not allowing those flood waters to go too far into their cities. They trusted Happy for that. He was the god of the Nile flood. The second one is Osiris, who was the god of the underworld, but uh, the Egyptians viewed the Nile as his bloodstream. They said the Nile was the bloodstream of Osiris. 
Third one is hat may hit. Don't worry about spelling that. It's just hat may hit. And that was the goddess of fish. And then the fourth was new, N-U. And this god was known as the watery one. And so, follow me. By turning the Nile to blood, here's what God was doing. The, the Lord, the true God, was exposing each of those false gods for the frauds that they are. And so Happy, who is the god of the Nile flood, apparently has no control over the waters of the Nile. They're being changed into blood, and Happy has no control over that. Osiris, they said the Nile was Osiris's bloodstream. Apparently, Osiris is so weak that he can't even defend his own bloodstream, which ironically turns into literal blood. Hat-Mehet, the goddess of fish, apparently can't protect a single fish. And then Nu, the watery one, is now being depicted as the bloody one. So what God is doing by turning the Nile into blood is he is exposing each of these false gods, each of these places where the Egyptians place their trust, he's exposing each of them as frauds and incapable of standing up against him. That's at least one reason why God turned the Nile into blood rather than just drying it out. A second reason is that 80 years earlier, Pharaoh commanded the Nile to run with the blood of Hebrew sons. You see this in Exodus 1. And so hundreds, perhaps thousands, of Hebrew sons bearing God's image were intentionally murdered in the Nile. And friends, God hadn't forgotten that. Matthew Henry puts it this way. He says, they had stained, the Egyptians had stained the river with the blood of the Hebrews' children. And now God made that river all bloody. Thus he gave them blood to drink, for they were worthy. It's interesting as you think about that. We turn to the end of the Bible in Revelation 16. We see something similar. When God is pouring out these seven bowls of wrath, Revelation 16, verse 6, we read, For they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and you, God, have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. Remember, every human being bears the image of God. And that human being glorifies God just by existing. Just by being alive, there's an image bearer of God. God's image is in the world. And as more image bearers enter into the world, God gets more glory. And so simply by existing, we glorify God by bearing his image. Each time a child is conceived, God begins knitting that child together in its mother's womb. And before that child is even born, God's placed his image and his likeness Upon it. So you can bet that Satan will do all that he can to prevent children from coming into the world. He did that with Pharaoh and the Hebrews, and he's still relentlessly working toward that end even today. In fact, since 1973, there have been roughly 64 million abortions in the U.S. 64 million. Now, if you take that and divide it just by the amount of years there, you're looking at about 1.3 million abortions per year, which then if you divide that by 365 days in a year, you get roughly 3,500 abortions per day. Friends, 9-11 was 2,997 individuals. 
the abortion numbers are more than that every single day. Every single day we have another 9-11 taking place in our own nation. That's just the U.S. Friends, God doesn't change. If the murder of children angered God with Egypt, it will anger him now. He's the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. And so two things. Christian, seek to protect life from conception to natural death. Do that with your actions. Do that with your conversations, with your counsel toward others. And do that with your voting. In November, there's issue one. I'd encourage you to familiarize yourself with it and vote to protect life. Two, Christian and non-Christian, be reminded of the gospel. So first, protect life. But second, be reminded of the gospel. So if you are in here, and this crowd, the statistics would say that there's at least somebody. If you're in here and you've had an abortion, if like Pharaoh, you've successfully taken the life of one of God's image bearers, or if you've encouraged someone else to end the life of an image bearer, God has promised you, like every other person, that you will face his perfect justice. He promises that. He warns us of that. He is not one to go back on his promises. No sin, friends, will go unpaid for. However, and hear this, however, if you confess your sin and go to God for mercy, he promises to extend it every single time. There is no sin that is too great for God to cover by his grace. Christ's death on the cross was sufficient to pay for your sin. And his resurrection three days later was evidence that it was sufficient, that God accepted it. God has extended mercy through Jesus who paid sin's penalty for all who go to him. He took on the Father's wrath in your place, in the place of every person who comes to him for saving. And so your sin can be washed away, never to be remembered again. God has warned of the judgment to come. It is coming. Taking the life of an image bearer is sin. God hates that. Pharaoh did that. He hates it even today. But don't be like Pharaoh, who heard God's warning, yet disregarded it. Because the next two verses, verses 20 and 21, we see God's warning realized. Look with me there. Verse 20 and 21, Moses and Aaron did as the Lord commanded. In the sight of Pharaoh and in the sight of his servants, he lifted up the staff and struck the water in the Nile, and all the water in the Nile turned into blood. Fish in the Nile died, Nile stank, so that the Egyptians could not drink water from the Nile, and there was blood throughout all the land of Egypt. It's God's mercy, friends, to extend warnings to us. It's a, it's a wonderful thing. It's a gracious thing. We, he's under no obligation to do it. Romans 6.23 says that the wages of sin is death. He's under no obligation to give us a warning. Those are the wages for our sin. But he does. He shows you mercy today by allowing you to hear the good news that there is forgiveness of your sin in Jesus Christ. It's God's character also to honor his word. 
to honor his warning. So if he warns of something, it's in his character to keep that thing, to keep his word. So it shouldn't be any surprise to us when, when this comes true with Pharaoh. The warning didn't affect Pharaoh, and so God continued on and said, okay, I told you that this was going to happen, and now it is, in fact, happening. The Nile turned to blood. Now, some argue that the Nile didn't literally turn to blood, but maybe it was just blood-like in color because of the red sediment in the region. However, I'm not convinced of that simply because of verse 21. There are more reasons, but at the very least, verse 21. We see that the fish in the Nile died, the Nile stank, and the Egyptians couldn't drink from the Nile. And so if it was just red water, the fish wouldn't have died. The Egyptians could still find a way to drink it, and it wouldn't stink the way that it did. Friends, the Egyptians relied so heavily on the Nile that they began to worship it. And so God took their idol away from them. He turned it into blood. He turned into blood what they had turned into a god. And friends, he's not above doing that today as well. If there's anything that we've placed in front of him, do not be surprised if God removes that thing from your life to get your attention, to shake you a little bit, so that you can see clearly who your ultimate trust should be in and where you should be placing your worship. But then we see these magicians, they show up again. And look, they're, they're able to do the same by their secret arts. And we're not sure if that's dark spiritual activity or sleight of hand or both, but either way, it's not that impressive right? Think about it. These Egyptians are living in Egypt where all the water above ground has turned into blood. And so if there is any drinking water left, it, there's very little. And so for them to say, hey, look, we've got this clear, clean water over here. Let us turn this into blood too. It's like them scoring in their own basket. So God says, yeah, okay, go ahead, score against yourselves. If they really wanted to show that they were just as powerful as the Lord, as Yahweh, then they wouldn't turn what little drinking water they had into blood as well. They would reverse what the Lord had done, and they would take all the Nile, or even just some of it, some of the water that's there, and turn it back into drinkable water. But they couldn't. Rather, God allows them to just score against themselves. Which ends up being sufficient evidence for Pharaoh. Look, Pharaoh didn't really want to believe the Lord anyway. And so the weakest possible argument of them just taking some of the clear water and turning it red, that is sufficient evidence for him to continue going on and rejecting the Lord. And friends, some of us today are like Pharaoh. We don't really want to trust the Lord. We don't really want to trust God. And so even the weakest arguments are sufficient for us to continue turning away from him. And so if you're a non-Christian, if, if you're not a follower of Jesus today and you are here, first off, thank you for being here. We hope that you feel welcome. hope that you feel loved. hope that you hear the truth and receive it. hope you keep coming back. However, like Pharaoh, you'll accept some of the weakest arguments against God simply because you don't want him to be real. Because if he was real, then it would have a massive impact on your life. You also will at times just lose yourself in high-minded philosophical arguments or go down rabbit trails of YouTube videos and podcasts just to justify your position because you don't want to have to consider the few questions that actually matter. Questions, simple questions, like why is there something rather than nothing? What went wrong? It doesn't take you long to look around and see murders and see 
people stealing and wonder why, what went wrong? Is there any hope? And where's everything headed? They're simple questions that every coherent worldview has to answer without contradicting itself with each answer. And the Christian worldview answers each of those questions without contradiction. Why is there something rather than nothing? Because God created. What went wrong? We rebelled against God. Is there any hope? Yes. He has sent his son into the world to live a life that has zero rebellion. That submits to him perfectly. And where's everything headed? It's heading to everything being recreated again in Christ. And God is going to eradicate the world from sin, from any rebellion against him. So if you stay in your rebellion against him, you will experience his wrath. Christian, we can often be like Pharaoh because we're prone to ignore some of the plainest commands from God simply because we want to pursue the things we love more than God. We are prone to this. We want to do this over here. We know that it, God's probably not pleased with that. And so we'll ask certain people so we get the answer that we want. We'll, we'll look up certain articles. We'll try to find certain parts so that we can just justify going this route rather than submitting ourselves to God, be it with relationships, be it with sex or money or success or health or just wanting respect. We will find ways to ignore some of the plainest commands from God just so that we can pursue what it is that we truly love. And look, something for us to see is that Pharaoh's rejection of God doesn't just hurt Pharaoh. It hurts those around him as well. Look at verse 24. All the Egyptians dug along the Nile for water to drink, for they could not drink the water of the Nile. The effects of Pharaoh's sin rippled beyond himself to all the Egyptians. And the same can be said of us when we sin. So the Egyptians trusted the Nile for their livelihood, which led them to worship it with various different false gods. However, God makes them painfully aware that that worship and that trust has been misplaced. So friends, who or what do you trust to sustain your life? Where do you place your ultimate trust? If your ultimate trust is placed on anything but God, don't be surprised that the Lord takes that thing away. The same way that he took the Nile away from the Egyptians. And look, it's not because God doesn't want you to be happy or joyful or to enjoy the life that he's given you. In fact, he wants you to know the greatest possible joy. The greatest possible happiness. And not just for a few years or decades while you have this life here, but for all eternity. He wants that for you. But friends, that only comes by placing your ultimate trust and your worship in Jesus Christ. Look at him. Matthew Henry actually makes a a pretty interesting comparison between what Moses brought by changing the water and what Jesus brings by changing the water. He says this. He says, one of the first miracles Moses wrought was turning water into blood. But one of the first miracles our Lord Jesus wrought was turning water into wine. For the law was given by Moses, and it was a dispensation of death and terror. But grace and truth, which like wine make glad the heart, came by Jesus Christ. Friends, we have all fallen short of God's law. We have. That's what, that's what God's law is there to show us, is that we fall short. God used Moses to bring that law, and it should be a, a mirror to us that when we look at it, we see we do not live up to this. 
But Jesus brought grace and truth. He says, don't look at yourself, look at me. I have fulfilled the law on your behalf. Place your trust in me. That's what Jesus is saying. I would encourage you to do that. And if you have any questions about what that looks like, please talk to me afterward. Find a Christian around you. Ask them. We would love to have that conversation with you afterward. Second, and these next two points are shorter than the first, I assure you. But the second is the frogs. So let's look at those first 15 verses of chapter 8. We read this. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, Let my people go, that they may serve me. But if you refuse to let them go, behold, I will plague all your country with frogs. The Nile shall swarm with frogs that shall come up into your house and into your bedroom and on your bed and into the houses of your servants and your people and into your ovens and your kneading bowls. The frogs shall come up on you and on your people and on all your servants. And the Lord said to Moses, say to Aaron, stretch out your hand with your staff over the rivers, over the canals and over the pools and make frogs come up on the land of Egypt. So Aaron stretched out his hand over the waters of Egypt, and the frogs came up and covered the land of Egypt. But the magicians did the same by their secret arts and made frogs come up on the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh called Moses and Aaron and said, Plead with the Lord to take away the frogs from me and from my people, and I will let the people go to sacrifice to the Lord. Moses said to Pharaoh, Be pleased to command me when... I am to plead for you and for your servants and for your people that the frogs be cut off from you and your houses and be left only in the Nile. And he said, tomorrow. Moses said, be it as you say, so that you may know that there is no one like the Lord our God. The frogs shall go away from you and your houses and your servants and your people. They shall be left only in the Nile. So Moses and Aaron went out from Pharaoh and Moses cried to the Lord about the frogs as he had agreed with Pharaoh. And the Lord did, according to the word of Moses. The frogs died out in the houses, the courtyards, and the fields, and they gathered them together in heaps, and the land stank. But when Pharaoh saw that there was a respite, he hardened his heart and would not listen to them, as the Lord had said. And so looking at these 15 verses, we see yet again God graciously offering a warning to Pharaoh. He gives him a second Warning. And look, this is just going to be a consistent pattern as we look at these plagues, as we look at these signs. And here's the pattern. So commentators point out that the ten plagues, the first nine are in sets of three. Okay, so we've got one through three, then we have four through six, and we have seven through nine. And in each of those, the first plague, Moses goes to Pharaoh in the morning and warns him about it. Pharaoh doesn't listen, and so the plague happens. The second plague, Moses goes to Pharaoh in his own palace. So he's not just like bumping into him out on the Nile. He's now going straight up into his house and saying, hey, this is going to happen. If you don't change, if you don't let God's people go, this is going to happen. Pharaoh does not listen. And the plague happens. And then with the third one, God just doesn't give a warning anymore. He's given multiple warnings. And then there's a day when that warning is not there anymore. And we see this pattern repeated three times. It's important for us to recognize the consistency there. Friends, don't overlook that pattern. God will warn you of what's to come. He is going to judge all sin, and we are all sinners. 
But eventually, friend, there will be no more warnings. None of us know when our last day here is. When that day comes, the warnings will be done. None of us know when the Lord will return. And when he does, the warnings will be done. Today is the day of salvation. If you have not trusted in Christ, let today be the day. Talk to me, talk to another Christian, please. Put your trust in Christ. God has graciously given warnings. He gave them to Pharaoh, one of the most wicked men on earth, and he's giving them to you today that you would hear the good news and you would respond with repentance and faith in Christ. Now, just like we asked, why turn denial into blood? Why frogs? Like, why is that a plague? You know what? I, I know how to really get the Egyptians. I'm going to just send a ton of frogs. They're annoying little animals, little critters. I'm going to send a bunch of those. What, why? Why frogs? Well, as you probably could imagine, the Egyptians had a frog goddess. And this was a fertility goddess named Heket. H-E-Q-E-T. Heket. Now, she was represented in the form of a frog. Now, to the Egyptians, the frog was a symbol of fertility. They believed Heket, this fertility goddess who was in the form of a frog, they believed Heket was responsible for safe deliveries of children. So when a mother went into labor, they would often wear amulets and beads around their wrists that had uh, images of Heket, trusting that Heket would deliver the baby safely. Now, also, because Heket was in the form of a frog, they just assumed that Heket was responsible for the frog population. And so while the Nile flooded each year, as we said earlier, there would be more frogs that came up closer to the city, and they just trusted, they trusted happy that the waters wouldn't come too close, and they trusted Heket that the frogs wouldn't come too close. And so by swarming the land with an uncontrollable population of frogs, God was absolutely humiliating Heket. Just showing them this frog goddess that you are placing your trust in is insufficient to control the frog population. And if she is insufficient to control the frog population, then she is insufficient to control your future, your fertile future with more children. But once again, the magicians show up. And once again, rather than reverse the sign, they make it worse for themselves. So look, look there in verse 7. But the magicians did the same by their secret arts and made frogs come up on the land of Egypt. Again, they're just scoring in their own end zone. You know what? We have power. We have just as much power as, as the Lord. We're going to make frogs come up as well. If they really wanted to show their power, they'd just send the frogs back. They'd be able to put them all back into the Nile, but they're incapable of doing that. But unlike the first plague, Pharaoh actually gives in here. He realizes that Heket is powerless against the Lord. He realizes that his magicians are no match for the Lord. And in verse 8, we read that Pharaoh called Moses and Aaron and said, Plead with the Lord to take away the frogs from me and my people, and I'll let the people go. And so now here's the thing. Moses uses this opportunity right here to prove to Pharaoh that the Lord is the one true God. Look, look at how he responds. He tells Pharaoh, he gives him the option to choose when the frogs would be removed. Just be pleased. You command me when. When do you want all these frogs to leave your nation? And Pharaoh chooses what would seem to be impossible. He says, tomorrow. Have these millions of frogs, have them gone by tomorrow. 
And so, Pharaoh, look, I mean, here's the thing. Immediate gratification like that, that he's requesting, is a relatively new thing. I mean, we're, we're in a privileged place in history where we get this immediate gratification when it comes to shows and music and fast-acting Tylenol. I mean, you have a headache, you just you grab some of that. This, immediate, this idea of immediate gratification is relatively new. However, God displays his unique power by answering Pharaoh's request to immediacy. Verse 10, Moses says, Be it as you say, so that you may know. Here's why. So that you may know that there is no one like the Lord our God. The frog shall go away from you and your houses and your servants and your people. They shall be left only in the Nile. In the next three verses, we see that very thing taking place. The frogs sighed out, and they gathered the frogs in heaps. This was not just a normal amount of uh, seasonal increase of frogs. This was, I mean, they were gathering them in heaps. So much so to the point where they were coming out of the bread poles in their house. They couldn't go anywhere without stepping on frogs or running into frogs. However, as we see in verse 15, Pharaoh changes his mind. So when things got bad, Pharaoh promised to obey the Lord. But once things got better, he went back to his old ways. And friends, we are so prone to doing that very thing. When things get bad enough, God, I will do whatever you say. But then when we experience some respite, some relief from that, we go back to our old ways. Some of you know that, that I've had some stomach issues uh, throughout the course of, I don't know, last 10 to 15 years of my life. And so when I eat the wrong thing, I just end up vomiting it up, okay? And it's just because it doesn't sit right with me. We're trying to figure it out. It's nothing overly serious. Don't, don't worry about that. But, but here's the thing. When I'm in the middle of, like, just vomiting, I'm like, I will never eat that food again. Never. I'm never going to do it. I'm, I'm not even going to take a risk. It's not worth it. But as soon as that goes away and the next day I feel a little bit better and I'm hungry, I tend to go right back to it. We're just, we're just prone to do that. When we experience some relief, we end up going back to our old ways. And Pharaoh's doing the same thing. He's like, you know what? This, these frogs are too much. Take your people and go. But as soon as the frogs go, Pharaoh changes his mind. The Egyptians had placed their trust in a false frog goddess named Heket. And in humiliating fashion, the Lord made it clear that he, not Heket, is responsible and powerful over life and fertility. The Lord is worthy of their trust and worship, not Heket. And then we slide right into the gnats. So as with this third plague, we see this time that there is no warning. Look at verse 16. Then the Lord said to Moses, say to Aaron, Stretch out your staff and strike the dust of the earth so that it may become gnats in all the land of Egypt. And they did so. Aaron stretched out his hand with his staff and struck the dust of the earth, and there were gnats on man and beast. All the dust of the earth became gnats in all the land of Egypt. The magicians tried by their secret arts to produce gnats, but they could not. So there were gnats on man and beast. Then the magician said to Pharaoh, This is the finger of God. But Pharaoh's heart was hardened. And he would not listen to them, as the Lord had said. Friends, that last point, jumping down to 19, there will eventually be a time when it becomes abundantly clear that this is the finger of God. Let that time be in your life when you submit and recognize God's power. Every knee will one day bow, either willingly or forcefully. 
I can promise you it will go far better for you if you do it willingly now. Unlike Pharaoh, recognize the power of the Lord and submit to him joyfully. But something else to notice with this, notice how we go from, from larger to smaller. We start with the raging Nile, and then we get down to frogs, and then we get down to gnats, the dust of the earth. It's as if God is making the case that he is sovereign and powerful over everything. Unlike the Egyptians, Egyptian gods, the Lord is making the point that he doesn't have just a small area of responsibility, like the Nile flood, or fertility, or the earth. He's responsible for all of it, and he has power over all of it. And it's also interesting that God says to strike the earth, because as you could have guessed, the Egyptians worshipped an earth god named Geb, G-E-B, also known as the father of snakes. And what we've said as we've gone through this book of Exodus is that this is a showdown between Pharaoh, who is the seed of the serpent, and Israel, who is the seed of the woman, back from Genesis 3. And God is making it known that he is more powerful than the seed of the serpent, that the seed of the serpent, that its head will be crushed. And God tells Moses and Aaron to strike the earth, strike the dust of the earth, strike Geb, the father of snakes, and turn the dust of the earth into gnats. Again, God is humiliating the false gods of Egypt. And this time, the magicians, they have no answer. They try, but they're unable to produce even a cheap imitation. And they eventually admit to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. Friends, where is your ultimate trust? If you're hurting today, where are you placing your ultimate trust? Where are you going for counsel? When everything is quiet at the end of the day, where do you find comfort? Are you unsure about the future? Who are you going to? Bringing those uncertainties to. In Isaiah 36, and in verse 5, we read this. In whom do you now trust that you have rebelled against me? Behold, you are trusting in Egypt, that broken reed of a staff which will pierce the hand of any man who leans on it. Such is Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to all who trust in him. That verse 5 there, in whom do you now trust? Spurgeon, if any of you are familiar with his morning and evening devotional, it's a great devotional, highly encourage it. Last night, so October 7th evening, he elaborated on this very verse, in whom do you now trust? And he says this. He says that we should trust each person of the Trinity. Follow him here. He says, I trust the Father, believing that he has chosen me from the foundations of the world. I trust him to do at least five things. He lists these five things for the Father. He says, provide for me in providence, to teach me, to guide me, to correct me if need be, and to bring me home to his own house where many mansions are. Friends, is your trust in the Father? Spurgeon says that this is an important question. Who do we trust? He also says, I trust the Son. Very God of very God is he, the man, Christ Jesus. He said, I trust in him to do at least four things. To take away all my sins by his own sacrifice and to adorn me with his perfect righteousness. 
I trust him to be my intercessor, to present my prayers and desires for his father's throne. And I trust him to be my advocate at the last great day, to plead my cause and to justify me. He trusts the son to take away his sin, to adorn him with perfect righteousness, to be his intercessor and to be his advocate. Friends, is your trust in the son? And then he says, and I trust the Holy Spirit. I trust him to drive all my sins out. I trust him to curb my temper, to subdue my will, to enlighten my understanding, to check my passions, to comfort my despondency, to help my weakness, to illuminate my darkness. I trust him, in summary, to do at least three things. To dwell in me as my life, to reign in me as my king, and to sanctify me completely. Is your trust in the Holy Spirit? Friends, the Lord is the one true God. Therefore, our ultimate trust and worship belongs to him. And what an amazing peace awaits those who trust in the Lord. When all kinds of things are raging around us, we can trust God is using this for my good. Victory is in Christ. No matter what this world throws at me, I will, re- I will live with the Lord for all eternity in the greatest possible happiness and joy. Because Christ has stood in my place and taken my sin and I've confessed my sin and trusted him to remove it and him to adorn me in his righteousness. Friends, are you presently trusting in the triune God? Or has your trust been placed elsewhere? Let's pray. Father, we come before you recognizing that you are the one true God. We ask that you, by your grace, would help us to place our ultimate trust and our ultimate worship in you and you alone. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.